Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WMYC Radio, I'm Jamie Floyd, sitting in for Kai Wright. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm John Priddo here from The Economist. On Mondays, we're talking with you about the first 100 days of the Trump administration, what it means for the rest of the world, how the country seems to outsiders right now. Tonight's topic is Russia and the United States Department of Justice. And we actually want to talk about the intersection of those two major topics. And believe it or not, they do intersect. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, let's take a step back. The first real fallout for the Trump administration for talking to the Russians came when it was revealed when uh, that national security advisor, Mike Flynn, had talked to the Russian ambassador during the transition. But had apparently lied about that fact to the vice president. Here's White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer. Whether or not he actually misled the vice president was the issue. And that was ultimately what led to the president asking for and accepting the resignation of General Flynn. That's it, pure and simple. It was a matter of trust. Then it was revealed that Jeff Sessions, now our new attorney general, also met with that same Russian ambassador twice. His name is Sergei Kislyak. Even though Sessions had testified under oath during his confirmation hearings that he had not. And that led to a chorus of calls on Capitol Hill for Sessions to resign as well. Here's New York Congressman Sean Maloney. This guy had multiple meetings with the Russian ambassador and he lied about it. And he's the attorney general of the United States. That's not okay. And it was exactly the reason Michael Flynn resigned. Uh, I don't know why it would be any different here. But instead of resignation, Jeff Sessions recused himself from any investigation between the Trump campaign and Russia, and offered his regrets. In retrospect, I should have slowed down and said, but I did meet one Russian official a couple of times. That would be the ambassador. Now, we still don't know whether or how the Russia connection will be investigated, but what we do know is that the country's top lawyer at DOJ won't be involved. So, Jamie, I'm particularly excited you're here on a night where we plan to talk about the law, because in addition to being a radio host for WNYC, a longtime journalist, you're a lawyer. You spent some time in the Clinton White House working on justice. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be able to help us navigate through this area where politics and the law meet, which can be pretty confusing for non-lawyers like like me. I'll do my best. John, I'm interested in your perspective from the UK, uh, US editor for The Economist, steeped in US politics. So maybe you can uh, put on your de Tocqueville hat, play a little de Tocqueville for us. What, What are outsiders saying? What's the outside view of what's going on? In the first, I think it's 45 days of the Trump administration. I'm almost afraid to ask, what are you thinking, especially about this business with Russia? It's only 45, right. Um, Well, de Tocqueville is a big hero of mine, so that's setting the bar really high. But I think if he was traveling around the country now, one of the things that would surprise him is that America does, in fact, seem to be divisible, which is unfortunate given Mm. the title of this show. Yeah. If you poll those who are most engaged in politics, um, this is some numbers from Pew, 
you know, the people who should be most informed about what's going on. More than 70% of Democrats say they're afraid of Republicans. And almost as many Republicans say the same thing about Democrats now. And that division, you know, it didn't begin with Donald Trump. It began decades ago, and it's been accelerating since the end of the Cold War, I think, when victory in the Cold War robbed America of a kind of unifying enemy. But I don't think there's much doubt that President Trump is making it worse. And this is where the Russia story comes in. I I spoke to the Economist Moscow correspondent uh, about how Jeff Sessions and his meetings with the Russian ambassador were playing there. He told me that some of the wilder accusations flying around reminded him of the way the Russian government once saw CIA plots everywhere. Mm. And he also made the point that, you know, whatever Russia's intentions were uh, in hacking the election... Um, it, you know, if you take the sort of most extreme version of of, of that, they appear to have backfired horribly um, to the point that, you know, the Russian ambassador can't now meet people in Washington without it uh, appearing incredibly suspicious. Um, so, you know, what do we know about this story? We know that Russia interfered in America's election. You know, the director of national intelligence, James Clapper, said so in January. What we don't know and will never know is what effect that intervention had but it's a huge leap from acknowledging that it took place and that it's serious and troubling and all the rest of it to saying that Russia swung the election or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just as it's a huge leap um, for the president to take an old story about an application to the FISA court for a wiretap, which is what he did on Twitter on Saturday morning, and say that Congress needs to investigate Barack Obama for abuse of power. And those kind of leaps are only possible, I think, in a country that's as divided as America is now, where people on one side of a political argument can really easily believe the worst about the people on the other side. And that, frankly, is not a place that Tocqueville would have recognized. Right. And that's uh, how we try to get from divisible... Uh, from indivisible to divisible and divisible to indivisible, and that's why we have this show. And and listeners, we want to hear from you. Last week, Donald Trump addressed a joint session of Congress. At that moment, he got very high marks from some quarters. But then the message, uh, I think most analysts would agree, was derailed. Uh, this time over news that his attorney general had been in those conversations with the Russian ambassador during the campaign at a time when uh, Jeff Sessions was advising the campaign, but then lied about it during his confirmation hearing. So we want to know from listeners, is that something you care about? Or are there other issues you care about more? Immigration, jobs, uh, crime, uh, or, or do you care about national security? Do you care uh, that uh, former national security advisor Michael Flynn, who resigned last month over very similar allegations and revelations, uh, or, or the, the news about Jeff Sessions meeting with the Russian ambassador, do you care that that may have some effect or implications on national security? Call us up and let us know. 844 745 TALK. That's 844 844- Seven four five eight two five five, and and while your calls are coming in, we do want to talk about the U.S. Department of Justice more generally, more globally, uh, with Sessions uh, under fire. Back in the news again today because of the new executive order that was issued, and we'll talk about why he's relevant to that news. Uh, let's take the opportunity to better understand the job of the Attorney General, the unique role of the Justice Department in our government, not to mention uh, the key issues uh, under Sessions' control under 
uh, as attorney general under the purview of the Department of Justice. And to do that, I'm so pleased to say we are joined by Professor Jeffrey Rosen of the George Washington University School of Law. And Professor, uh, I want to point out you're president of the National Constitution Center. Uh, I believe it's the only institution in America chartered by Congress uh, to disseminate information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. Am I right about that? Is that correct? Yes, thank you for reading our congressional charter so beautifully. That was very inspiring. Well, it, very it's much. an inspiring it's an inspiring charter, and it's perfect for our show, Indivisible. Excellent. Welcome to Indivisible. It is great to be back, and I love the show. Well, first thing, uh, quickly, we have a new travel uh, executive order uh, referred to by many people as a travel ban, but to, to be precise and accurate, it's an executive order. Uh, issued by President Trump today. It, they did remove Iraq from the list of uh, countries. It's now six countries. How else is it different from the one issued in January? A- and is it more likely to withstand, in, in your constitutional uh, view, scrutiny from the courts, as far as you can tell, on a first reading? So as you say, it no longer includes Iraq. It no longer singles out Syria for indefinite suspension. It eliminates any explicit preference for religious minorities. It delays implementation for 10 days. It allows consular officials to decide on a case-by-case basis whether there'd be an undue hardship on individuals. Uh, So those are some of the big changes. I think uh, the consensus of folks on both sides is that it's certainly more likely to withstand scrutiny than the first order in the sense that the explicit religious preference for Christians over Muslims is removed as well as uh, the uh, notion that individuals will actually be stopped at the airport and would have a concrete and cognizable injury. Still, some judges may conclude either that there's no rational basis for the ban because a report of the uh, Trump administration just last week found no connection between the seven countries selected and post-9-11 terrorist attacks – And some other judges might think that the previous statements of the president, which had said, I want a Muslim ban, infect this formally neutral law and therefore that it still raises First Amendment problems. So we'll we'll see. But no question that this one is drafted much more tightly and it's being rolled out more professionally. And this gets me then to the question of who enforces uh, this kind of an order. And, and you know, of course, in, in, in uh, broadcast, we prepare all kinds of scripts. We write all kinds of questions. I have six questions before I'm supposed to get to this question, and already <laughs> I'm, I'm throwing care to the wind, uh, and I'm jumping ahead uh, to the question of uh, the Department of Justice and the many uh, the many things that Attorney General Jeff Sessions and the Department of Justice have under their purview. Of course, the FBI, the U.S. Marshals, ATF, DEA, and correct, immigration, right? Because Jeff Sessions came out today in support of this executive order, uh, speaking uh, about the ways in which it is superior to the original one issued on January 27th, uh, and the ways in which he thought it would be enforceable. Uh, does uh, explain to us how this there is an intersection between immigration, uh, immigration courts, and the Department of Justice? Yes. So, as, and I'm daunted to discuss this with you, Jamie, because you you worked in DOJ and you know this stuff uh, better than I. But um, not at DOJ all. was 
uh, what's so striking about this office is how old it was. It was the Judiciary Act of 1789 that created the office of the Attorney General, uh, and uh, so it goes right back to the founding. It was 1870 that the Department of Justice is established as an executive department. Uh, the Attorney General is supposed to be a person learned in the law, but now, as you suggested, uh, DOJ oversees the major law enforcement uh Agencies, including both the FBI, which is maybe crucial for the Russia investigation, uh, that means that the attorney general himself has the formal authority to fire the uh, FBI director, uh, ultimately accountable to President Trump, as well as, I guess, what's now called ICE, uh, which is the immigration service that enforces immigration laws. Now, this executive order delegates to customs officials within the immigration service all sorts of discretion, but ultimately, the attorney general is responsible for supervising uh, immigration courts, which operate, uh, when I teach criminal procedure, I'm always struck by how many fewer protections you have in an immigration court than if you're in a regular Article Three or federal court, uh, fewer uh, rules of evidence, fewer uh, protections, and you can be deported on a much lower standard of evidence. But nevertheless, those immigration courts are ultimately accountable to the attorney general as well. So he will have the authority to further issue guidelines about the enforcement of this order to um, refine it, and he'll have a big say in, in how it is put into effect. So, so the Department of Justice is is huge. There, there are about 115,000 people that work uh, at DOJ. Uh, the, the scope is really big. It's not just immigration, of course. Uh, t- tell us a little bit more about it, civil rights, uh, 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 FBI. I- explain so people understand the import uh, of the selection of the attorney general uh, and, and of the Department of Justice itself. Just as, as you say, so many areas of all of our law enforcement policies are centralized in this majestic, uh, it's sometimes kind of daunting, but, but very beautiful building in Washington, D.C., police oversight and the question of the impact between uh, police and minorities, sentencing policy, where the Obama administration uh, wanted to roll back on some of the disparities between crack and cocaine, and uh, Sessions may reach a different conclusion. Uh, private prisons, immigration, the war on drugs, how exp- expansively should laws against marijuana be enforced. Obama decided not to enforce possession laws. Session may reach uh, differently. Uh, The funding of public defenders and bail, uh, environmental laws, and most uh, dramatically recently, uh, voting rights and civil rights laws. So the Sessions recently uh, decided not to defend the challenge to Texas's voter ID law, which critics say imposes discriminatory requirements that make it easier for white people who have firearms identifications, for example, to vote and harder for minorities who may uh, uh, have other forms of identification. Uh, That suit is still going to go ahead and a, a judge might still find that it's discriminatory. But the decision by the Department of Justice whether or not to support one side or the other Uh, both in lower federal courts and ultimately in the Supreme Court through the office of the Solicitor General who reports to the Attorney General is another one of the huge powers that the Attorney General has to to, to set enforcement priorities. So, Jeffrey, as you say, it's an absolutely enormously powerful office. And actually, you know, your brief mention of the 
Texas challenge is a reminder of the way in which all the news about the Trump administration sort of buries a lot of important stuff that ordinarily we'd be looking at in more detail. But I just wanted to go back to something you said. We don't want to spend too much time talking about the revised um, visa sort of ban. But something you said just intrigued me so much I wanted to press you on it. You said that the judges might decide that there wasn't enough evidence for this executive action. You know, essentially that it was kind of a bad piece of work, that it was, you know, that the facts didn't support it. Is that something that judges are typically comfortable doing? I mean, saying to politicians, look, guys, you know, this just doesn't make any sense. Go and, go and think about it again. Or is it, you know, within the kind of normal purview of politics, sometimes to come up with things that make political sense, but don't make policy sense? It's a great question, and normally judges defer to the executive branch if there's any possible rational reason for a law, as long as there's not a suspect class uh, like religion or race that's being affected, then judges are supposed to be really deferential. Add to that the fact that in immigration laws, there's something called the plenary powers doctrine that gives the president such strong control to set policy over the borders that judges are even more deferential. So under an ordinary presidency, in ordinary times, you'd expect judges to accept any colorable claim that this was a rational order. But these may not be ordinary times. Some have speculated that, that judges may have their backup, uh, having been uh, questioned by President Trump the last time around. And in light of the, deport, the report by Trump's own Department of Homeland Security last week, which concluded that an individual's country of citizenship is unlikely to be a reliable indicator of potential terrorist activity, and few of the impacted countries under the executive order have terrorist groups that threaten the West, it's not impossible to imagine at least some judges somewhere in the country, because there are a whole lot of them that could consider this, uh, saying we don't think that there's a rational reason to support this. But it would be an unusual move for the reasons you suggest. The normal approach in this kind of case is, is lots of deference. You are listening to Indivisible. I'm Jamie Floyd, sitting in for Kai Wright with John Prado from The Economist. Our guest is Jeffrey Rosen, and we have a call for you, Professor Rosen. Josette, you are on Indivisible Radio with Professor Jeffrey Rosen of the Constitution Center and George Washington University School of Law. What's your question, or what's your, uh, what's your issue that you're passionate about tonight? Well, what you were asking before earlier was the uh, suspected collusion between Trump and um, Putin. And what I had said, one of the, I mean, there's many things that bother me and upset me that are going on right now. But in that particular area, particularly with him, uh, Trump speaking about pulling out of NATO and Putin being more aggressive with his neighbors, I'm under, you know, I'm wondering what the end game is. I'm wondering what the end game is with, uh, you know, they're supposed to be getting along just great, and then all of a sudden he's going to up his nuclear uh, weaponry in 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 uh, the Soviet Union, so we're going to up ours here. Unless, oh, then Trump says, but I'd be willing to discuss the sanctions as a way to calm down this nuclear escalation, which was all a big game, you know? All right. Thank you so much, Josette, for the call. Professor Rosen, we're going to keep you on. We're going to take some more callers for our conversation here at Indivisible, Indivisible Radio. And thank you so much for listening. All of you, please call in 844-745-8255.
I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. You're listening to Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Jamie Floyd, sitting in for Kai Wright with John Perdoe from The Economist. And our guest is Professor Jeffrey Rosen. And I want to come back out to you, Professor, because our question to our callers is about the news that has been dominating the headlines, despite perhaps the White House's effort to shift the conversation, the news about conversations that members of the Trump campaign have been having with the White House, I mean, with the Russians, and the White House has been perhaps trying to steer the conversation in a different direction. And one of those, of course, was uh, Attorney General Sessions, and he recused himself from any investigations that may occur. There, there have not been any confirmed investigations uh, yet, uh, but investigations that may occur uh, between uh, the Department of Justice on Capitol Hill uh, of anything that may have occurred in uh, the campaign running up to the election, during the election cycle, et cetera, et cetera. He's not going to have anything to do with it. And this brings me to a question about who the attorney general works for and the history of attorneys general and the president and conflicts that have happened between attorneys general and presidents of the United States. Uh, because it seems to me, and I want you to educate us on this, Professor Rosen, that, that the Attorney General works for the people of the United States, not so much for the White House or for the President, that ultimately the Attorney General, as, as any prosecutor, works for the people. Uh, and it, my, my vague recollection is that there have been times when attorneys general have had to stand up to the White House and do what, what is right by the Constitution, even if a president may not like the decision that attorney general is making. Is that really uh, – is that what, the, what the, the, the charter of the Department of Justice calls for? And is that the spirit of, of what the Constitution calls for. What, what's your sense of it? Who, who is the attorney general, this attorney general, any attorney general working for, ultimately? It is a great question, and it's, I think, a hard question. Uh, formally, the attorney general works for the president, and the president has the undoubted legal authority to fire the attorney general for any reason. Hmm. Uh, but uh, And that uh, comes from the act creating the office of the attorney general, which requires that he be a meet or she be a meet person learned in law, but makes clear that part of the executive branch, uh, the attorney general is the fourth position created by Congress uh, in the cabinet. Um, and uh, we've had very political attorney generals like Bobby Kennedy, JFK's brother, uh, who exemplify the kind of uh, – partisan ally of the president model that some attorney generals have expressed. But there's been another model. Edward Levy, who is the attorney general of Gerald Ford, really championed this more apolitical idea, which Ford supported, that the attorney general did work for the 
people. And in fact, the Justice Department has a beautiful, as you remember, Jamie, has that lovely uh, legend in marble saying the United States wins its point when justice is done and solicitors generals inspire themselves with that idea. So that nonpartisan uh, tradition is competing. Uh, there have been times when it's come to a head. The most famous is President Nixon's attempt to fire uh, the special prosecutor. He asked his attorney general uh, to uh, Elliot Richardson's to, to to fire the attorney general, and Richardson, channeling this independent tradition, refused to do it and resigned on principle. And then Richardson's deputy resigned, and it fell to Robert Bork, the solicitor general, actually to do the dirty deed. So uh, that that tradition of Elliot Richardson continued by Edward Levy and embraced by the most inspiring attorney general since then, have said that there is a higher charter and that's to the uh, to, to the people or to the law. Much of the rubber hits the road in cases where the attorney general isn't trusted to be neutral. Uh, we saw Loretta Lynch recuse herself from uh, investigations about Hillary Clinton because of her contacts with President Clinton and now Jeff Sessions has recused himself. And the question is, who then represents the people? For a while, it was the independent council, a special law created by Congress, but both parties repudiated that after the mess of the Clinton impeachment. Mm. So now it's a special council, and it's the attorney. Ge- the attorney general formally has the power to appoint a special council who's supposed to be independent. Now I suppose the attorney general's deputy, the deputy AG, will make that appointment now that Sessions is recused. But even that special council formally can be fired by the attorney general or by the president at any point, as can the FBI director, despite the fact that he serves a 10-year term. So really, as much as we love to think of total insulation from politics in the Justice Department, ultimately, if the president really wants to fire a prosecutor who's going after him, he can. And of course, we did have James Comey this weekend feeling it was important to correct the record on whether the FBI had in fact participating participated in a wiretap uh, of the Trump Tower at the behest of the Obama White House and the the uh, the DOJ uh, has made no statement on that. Uh, we are taking your calls. Do you care about any of this? Do you care about the Russia connection? Uh, if so, how much do you care? Why? If not, why not? The number is 844-745-TALK. That's eight, uh, eight. I've, I've, been, I've been given the number. Yeah, it's 844-745-8255. Now, I was given the wrong number online. I want you to know the good old-fashioned piece of paper right <laughs> here is the one that I'm relying on. All right, let's go to some calls. And, and Department of Justice, I know you all care about that because that is key. That is key for all Americans, whatever side of the aisle you're on. All right, let's take Chris in Cincinnati, Ohio. I love hearing from people all over the country. It excites me uh, to my core. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for calling Indivisible. You are on with Professor Jeffrey Rosen. It is really a privilege uh, for us all that he is here with us. Uh, Please tell us your concerns. Uh, What issue matters to you? Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Um, so I, I'm an attorney, a new attorney in the area, and I studied history and uh, was very critical um, of the Obama White House and how it handled foreign policy. And I personally believe that uh, a lot of what we are seeing with ISIS and different things are a um, consequence of what uh, we saw with Obama's handling of foreign policy and Bush's and so on and so on. And so now to see that we we endless ties, uh, or at least they seem to be endless ties to the Russian government, and now the intelligence community seems to conclude that Russia clearly interfered 
in our election. And whether it's partisan or not, you've got one party that is screaming for something to be done and another that is more or less silent. And it's very concerning because I feel like it's an issue that I would I would think could imagine Americans. And so I guess when are we going to see more Republicans start to stand up to what we're seeing develop? Uh, you, you're a new lawyer, you say. Uh, when, when did you, if you don't mind my asking, graduate law school? Not a problem. Just uh, sworn in last May. Oh, well, thank you wow. for joining the profession. That does my heart some good. <laughs> How about you, Professor Rosen? Congratulations. Welcome aboard. And uh, please study the Constitution and learn as much about it as possible. It's really the most exciting thing you can do as a citizen. Chris, uh, what about uh, what you've been hearing in the news about Department of Justice, FBI, uh, what happened during the election cycle with the FBI and the emails and the politicization of uh, the uh, intelligence community and uh, justice and all of that, did that dishearten you? Did it uh, dissuade you at all from perhaps the practice of law? What was your feeling there? It, it was very disheartening to see um, as these certain things developed, whether it was with Michael Flynn or um, Senator, well, now Attorney General Sessions, and to only really, the two that I've noticed, uh, Senator McCain and um, Senator Lindsey Graham have been critical and indicated that they really want to see investigations done. But really, other than them, I have not heard much from the Republican side of the aisle. And I feel like this is an issue that, you know, if a foreign government is starting to negotiate ahead of time prior to the new president taking office, um, whether or not they're going to undermine policies that are in place based on what I think the world agrees were very egregious actions in Ukraine, um, you know, rolling back those sanctions and talking about different things there. Uh, you know, the fact that there is not doesn't seem to be any unity against that at, on a on a large scale is very troubling because I feel like there are certain things that we can expect from our government. One is that national security could be a unifying issue, but uh, clearly it's not. Thank you so much for your call, Chris, and good luck to you in the practice of law. Thank you for your service. I want to ask you, Jeffrey Rosen, one quick question before we have to let you go, and that's about uh, Senator Sessions and, and the civil rights issues. The Ferguson report that he says he's not read uh, is indicated he doesn't intend to read. Uh, the Justice Department is charged with implementing uh, these consent decrees uh, in Ferguson uh, and other parts of the country. Uh, Chicago, of course, is a major issue in terms of uh, violence and police uh, community relations there. I mean, I could list the number of cities, but we don't really have time. Uh, <laughs> given his record, should we be more concerned uh, about other issues? Um, you know, we're talking about Russia. We're focused. Of course, that's a concern. I see the board lit up here. and Many people seem to be concerned mm. about that. But, you know, the, the civil rights uh, division, and you mentioned voting rights. Uh, should we be uh, focused, especially considering his record and, and some of what he's had to say in the past, uh, focused about uh, focused on the future of the Department of Justice in the 21st century uh, under uh, Sessions and any attorney general who might uh, take that chair. 
Well, it will definitely be a dramatic change from the priorities of the Obama administration and previous administrations when it comes to questions like voting rights, civil rights, police violence, and so forth. It's not completely a new approach, and in some ways it's a return to the approach that we saw under President Reagan, where there was much less aggressive enforcement of anti-discrimination claims when it comes to voting rights and much more of a hands-off attitude. But this comes at a time when the Supreme Court has been rolling back on legal and constitutional requirements that voting districts pre-clear with the Justice Department changes that might discriminate against minorities. So there's no no doubt at all that it'll make a a big difference. And the fact that he's not using his priorities for that kind of enforcement and will instead be going after immigration enforcement and deporting a lot more people will just represent a huge change in the lived experience of Americans. Could I, would you indulge me just when John started off with Tocqueville and America and <laughs> Russia? I couldn't, I couldn't resist a quick Google. And it turns out Tocqueville set, predicted, he said there are at this present time two great nations in the world which start from different points, Russia and America. He says the Anglo-American gives free scope to the unguided strength and common sense of the people. The Russian centers all the authority of society in a single arm. The principal instrument of the former is freedom of the latter servitude. But he says both have the power to sway the destinies of half the globe. Oh, I think you've just warmed the man's heart. You can't have too much. He's always right. Thank you, thank you Google. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you very, great. very much for taking that extra time. I'm surprised you didn't know that off the top of your head, Professor Rosen. Oh, of course. Absolutely. John does, though, I'm sure. <laughs> thank you so much, Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center and professor at the George Washington School of Law. Good friend to us here at WMYC. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And we will be back in just a few moments. In fact, I want to take a moment to speak with you, uh, John. What, what did you think about uh, that little uh, quote there you just got from, uh, I guess that you're now a big uh, Jeffrey Rosen fan. We're big fans here at WMYC. Yeah, I, was but... a fan, I was a fan already, but you know, I'm even more of a fan after that, I have to say. The, the Russia part of that quote just interests me so much. You know, If you're somebody who's interested in Russian history, there are so many ways in which you know, Vladimir Putin's kind of reign in Russia is a throwback to the kind of czarist era when when Tocqueville was writing his stuff. I actually, I was living in Russia as a language student in 1998 under the kind of tail end of Boris Yeltsin's uh, time. And at the time, he was firing prime ministers every five minutes, basically whenever anything went wrong in Russia and quite a lot was going wrong, then he'd fire a prime minister. And I remember sitting around the TV one evening and he'd appointed this new guy called Vladimir Putin as his prime minister. Nobody had ever heard of him. He was a non-entity. You know, everybody I was watching the TV with assumed that he'd be gone in five minutes. And, you know, guess what? He's still there almost 20 years later. Well, it is uh, it is wonderful that we had someone on who could quickly uh, retrieve. He remembered. He didn't know it off the top of his head, but he remembered that connection to your hero and our conversation. Listeners, we are still taking your calls, and we want to know what issues are most important to you, no matter who you voted for, by the way. A nonpartisan, bipartisan conversation here on Indivisible. You are listening to Indivisible. I'm Jamie Floyd. I'm in for Kai Wright tonight. I'm so pleased to be riding along with John Perdoe from The Economist. And we want you to join the conversation, 844-745-TALK. That's 
800-848-8255. We want to know what your issue is. If you've become more politically engaged, especially, where are you spending your energy? Uh, are you energized over the Russia connection? Is that the issue that's getting you out to demonstrations, getting you to call your member of Congress? Uh, or is there something else that's getting you to pay attention to politics in a way that perhaps you have not before? The number again, 844-745-8255. And while your calls are coming in, we have another very special guest joining us now, Katrina Vanden Heuvel the editor, of course, of The Nation, and she has been writing a lot about the Russia connection, but in a very different way. Uh, Katrina, are you there now? Jamie, I'm here. Thank you for having me on, John. Thank you. And of well, thanks, for be- thanks for being here. Can I, can I, I was, jump I was, in there? I was interested, John, in what you said. I think uh-huh. history, history matters, and um, it- I've, been, I've been reporting... Uh, from Moscow for, you know, I've been going for 35 years, and I too remember when Putin came to power. Um, his, he wasn't known, as you, as you said, and his first act was to give immunity to Boris Yeltsin. Yeah. One thing that strikes me about the coverage of Russia at this moment is this is, as you know, a country with a rich, dark history. It is a multicolored, there are multicolored realities. And I think often because American media personifies so much, it's all Putin all the time. Do people know the Russian Orthodox Church is ascendant, that they have their own tea party? We do know about the repression of the media, but do we know that there's a vibrant, independent newspaper, Novaya Gazeta, or like you, this Echo Moskvi, a wonderful radio station? But I will just end by saying the de-democratization of Russia. Putin is an authoritarian leader, but the de-democratization began under Boris Yeltsin, who sold off Russia to the oligarchs, looted a country, impoverished millions. And it is a measure of our politics that the prevailing dominant narrative is that Yeltsin was the godfather of democracy. Gorbachev, who turned 86 a few days ago, was. But we need history. There were more journalists killed under Yeltsin than under Putin. I remember visiting the gravesite of a young correspondent for a newspaper, defense correspondent who was killed, bombed, Uh, his car was bombed because he was covering uh, corruption in the defense ministry. All of this is a long-winded way to say that I think what we're witnessing with this Russia fever, this Russia frenzy, is is dangerous for our country, neither because I'm neither, the nation is as anti-Trump as it comes. So it's neither pro-Trump nor pro-Putin to argue that this country needs a working relationship with Russia on proliferation, can, can, on nuclear issues, slew of issues. And I'm sorry, John, I'm fired up about this. And <laughs> No, it's it. interesting. It's great that you have this experience reporting on Russia and you have a kind of long view of it. I just wanted to ask you, you've likened the hysteria about Russia on the left. I think that's a phrase you used to a neo-McCarthyite furore. Can you explain a bit what you mean by that? Yeah, I, I've, I've called... Um, that I've worried that too many liberals, progressives, well, across the spectrum, transpartisan, have joined in fanning a kind of neo-McCarthyite furor and working to discredit those who seek to de-escalate Russian tensions, U.S.-Russian tensions, and dismissing anyone expressing doubts, having skepticism. 
Katrina, I'm up against the 30-second mark, so I'm going to introduce, I'm going to interrupt you right there with the uh, little tease you've given us, and we're going to let listeners know that this is indivisible. We've got uh, John Prado and Katrina Vanden of The Nation with us, and she'll be right back with her very unique perspective on Russia. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WMYC Radio, I'm Jamie Floyd, sitting in for Kai Wright. And I'm John Prudeau from The Economist. We've got Katrina Vanden Heuvel here, the editor of The Nation. We want to hear from you. We're talking about Russia, America, the Department of Justice, lots of important topics tonight. Katrina, you were halfway through an answer about the sort of what you described as a neo-McCarthyite mood about Russia. Can you just please, I wanted to finish, you'd finish your answer on that because it was interesting. Thank you, John. Um, the nation um, has a long and proud history standing up to the worst excesses of McCarthyism. But McCarthyism, in essence, there were many layers to it, but it impugned the loyalty of American citizens by accusing them of allegiance to a foreign country, uh, Soviet Union, in this case, it could be Russia, and what, what I see happening, we're dealing with an authoritarian leader in Russia, no longer the Soviet Union, but there is an attempt to suppress a full range of democratic debate over alternative policies and ideas. And I think that this, this uh, narrowing of debate, of sort of poisoning or chilling the political discourse of the nation, is not, it doesn't have happy ending, and certainly not for progressives whose you know, progressive budgets, civil liberties are often the first to be tamped down in a kind of um, McCarthyite period. Now, Trump himself, you know, this is where it's scrambled times and scoundrel times. You know, he's not been damaged by today's revival of this neo-McCarthyism. But I do think our national debate has been damaged. I mean, we need reasoned argument, factual critique. Of course, we need an investigation of uh, allegations of Russian hacking interference in our election, our democratic process. But, you know, you have, uh, I won't name names, but, you know, leading commentators uh, calling it the Putin-Trump regime, Putin's puppet. Uh, I have no brief for Donald Trump, but I think it's not good for our discourse. And I also think, if I could end, I think often some of this, this Russia frenzy is an attempt to blame some of the deep and abiding problems of our country on a foreign power. Mm. Some, some commentators, in fact, have pointed out it's a page from the playbook of none other than Putin himself. We can do better. That's what we should, we should be paying attention to how we revive this country. Uh, the Democrats and progressives should be pointing out the rollback of regulations, the unleashing of banks, the cabinet of generals, billionaires, and ideologues, and also laying out our own agenda. I mean, I was happy Bernie Sanders was down in Mississippi this past weekend, standing with workers, civil rights equals workers' rights. Sherrod Brown laid out a major manifesto in Ohio on workers' rights and jobs and dignity. We need to hear more of that. I worry that the Democrats, to some extent, are replicating the failed campaign strategy of just hammering away at Trump Mm. as unfit. Let the investigation go and fall where it will about his associates, his oligarchical ties, the money. But I think that there's a, there's a frenzy 
that concerns me. Mm. All right. We think, uh, I think some of our callers want to ask you some specific questions, Katrina, about what uh, we can be doing affirmatively rather than, as you say, simply attacking Trump and Putin, but what we can be doing affirmatively to lay out a positive agenda. And we have Isaiah in Brooklyn, I believe. Isaiah, you're still with us. Isaiah, are yeah, you I'm in high still school? Here, yeah. Yeah, I'm in high school. That is terrific. Thank you so much for calling in. And you are on with Katrina Vanden Heuvel. She is, of course, uh, with The Nation, the editor of The Nation, and uh, has many, many times traveled to Russia and has been writing about Russia and our Putin-Russia frenzy. Uh, What is your thought about it, Isaiah? Well, you know, actually, I'm taking a class in comparative politics now and had to study Russia in the past couple of weeks. And it's really interesting to really get to learn the dynamics of politics within Russia and how, you know, the work has been done and what's being done under Putin there. So it's really been interesting to see the consolidation and the centralization of power there and not seeing it extremely democratic or anything that, you know, Americans should be liking. So I have been sort of leery of how much support, especially on the Republican side, we've been giving towards Russia, especially because so many of the ideals that I'm seeing aren't really um, sort of in line with American ideals on democracy. So I love, I love, I love, first of all, I love you have high school students calling in. We need, we, um, but let me just come back to what I think could be done affirmatively, if I might. I mean, I think that we should be, uh, I wish the caller would run for office at some point soon. We need to (laughs) uh, get out there and run for school boards, run for city councils. We need to take back the cities and states of this country. We need to lay out an agenda that, uh, about the possibility of Medicare for all and expanded social security benefits right. and for you, right. tuition-free college, right? right? So a real plan to rebuild right. America. On the Russia front, let me say, I come back to my experience in Russia. I worked with women's groups to rebuild, uh, to build domestic shelters. Horrified and the Nation has written about the decriminalization of domestic violence laws, the ascendancy mm-hmm. of the Russian mm-hmm. Orthodox Church. But I do believe that we do better to build our to, to make our country the beacon. And we have a long way to go. I mean, we haven't even talked about the hacking of votes, the suppression of voting rights and the broken political system. But, but we need a working relationship. We don't need to, to love Russia, but we need to, have a, to reduce the nuclear arms race that is so dangerous mm-hmm. and people aren't pay, paying attention to it, to, to combat terrorism, to even mm-hmm. combat climate, the climate crisis. So I think that working partnership is in the United States national interest. We don't want them. But the more we, I think, engage in trying to deflect attention from our own problems and not deal with them and blame it on a foreign power, the more distant we are from making this the greatest democracy, the most the more perfect it should be. Excellent. Thank you so much, Isaiah. I hope you will call Indivisible again Monday through Thursday here on WNYC and throughout the country. Let's go. Speaking of throughout the country, Katrina, let's go to Flint, Michigan. Andrew is calling. Andrew, you're on with Katrina Vanden Heuvel of The Nation. Hi. Thank you very much for, for taking my call. Um, I, I'm, I'm very interested in, in the Russia issue, but at the same time, I, I'm wondering what what you think or how you think it if it, it perhaps distracts from other issues like his proposed cuts to the EPA, 
in the Clean Water Act, and I don't know how much it, it might be selfish of me to prioritize that, but I think these are really, really big issues that I don't that I see occasionally, but I don't see as much intense coverage as as the Russia issue. And I'm wondering this is this how is what I this is what you, you you're not selfish. How can you be selfish living in Flint, Michigan? and think that we should not prioritize or give more attention to the decaying infrastructure of this country. When we pay so much attention to the Russia issue, not only do we lose sight of the, some, like the rollback of the EPA, the 90 regulations that have been rolled back by Republicans in the last 40 days, but we lose sight of what Cold War, new Cold War budgets, which you know Trump laid out a $54 billion increase in the defense budget, that's going to take away from the priorities this country, the, to rebuild this country. So I think we do need to pay attention. We had an editorial meeting this morning. Of course, we're going to call for investigation of new allegations. But we also want to bring attention to these regulations that have gone under the radar and are going to gut our country, roll back the civilizing reforms and advances. And also, as I said earlier, bring attention to what people are trying to speak to. I mean, there are people out there talking about a plan to rebuild America. Elizabeth Warren, for example, she's fighting hard to preserve the only government agency in the last decade or more that has been established to work on behalf of consumers who will be ravaged. The hope here is to expose the big con of Trump, how his supporters are going to be so hurt by the very policies he and this Republican Party are driving through, ramming through. Look at the health care plan. I mean, millions are going to lose rights and care, even lives and family. Katrina, it sounds like you're almost making a case to sort of ignore what's going on with Russia. I know, no, I know you're not. No. You say it's important, but but as an you know, as an editor, you must have to apply some sort of filter to the torrent of news that's coming out of the White House and and trying to prioritize, you know, what's important over you know, what seems like the shiniest kind of new thing. How, you know, I think a lot of listeners are probably in the same position. You know, they wake up in the morning, they see that the president has tweeted some accusation um, and calling for Congress to invest, investigate his predecessor, which seems kind of unprecedented. But then, you know, they're not really sure whether how much it matters. Is it just a tweet? Is it something to ignore? How do you, how are you kind of sifting through that and deciding what to focus your reader's attention on at, at, the, at the nation, what to just kind of ignore? Well, I will say that uh, it's a very good question. Um, what we've tried to do is you cannot ignore Donald Trump's tweets but the hyper coverage, I have argued, degrades, debases uh, media coverage. It distracts people. So-called winning the morning drives the news cycle. We just did a special issue on the media in the Trump era. And we need, hell, we need to do better as media in covering President Trump than we did candidate Trump. Media malpractice to some extent in 2016, failure to really cover the issues, helped abet Donald Trump's rise. We are not ignoring the Russia uh, uh, story. We are being contrarian and we are uh, attacked in many ways by progressive community for not lining up uh, and just accepting uh, the, I would argue, assertions more than verifiable evidence provided by the intelligence agency. Skepticism is not treason. It's essential to establishing the truth. We need an in independent investigation to offer citizens more evidence uh, but, of course, we're covering that. But I'll tell you, one of the underreported stories of last year, and we have one of the great voting rights correspondents, Ari Berman, was the suppression 
Uh, voting rights, I think, you know, you've probably covered that. I know Kai Wright, our former editor, did enormous work on that. So we try to bring attention to communities on the front line, of course, the, quote, revised Muslim ban today, to uh, the fact that private prisons are now being authorized by the Department of Justice, the fact that banks are on a looser leash. I mean, th- these are all issues very close to the central social economic justice issues of the nation. And so um, it's a struggle every day, but try not to be tethered to Donald Trump's tweets, which suggest, you know, he doesn't even need Breitbart News. He has his own channel. <laughs> How do we, Katrina, create conversations across the political divide? Very good question. I uh, was on a call today. The nation is going to start what we like to call uh, red states, not for long tour. We want to take the nation out to the country, the states, uh, Iowa, Montana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and have conversations with people uh, who, you know, may have voted for Donald Trump. But to talk to people, because I think I'm thinking of uh, Trump's other war on the media. Uh, That's the FCC rollback of media democracy, net neutrality. Net Net neutrality was saved a decade or more ago by a transpartisan coalition of people uh, who didn't like big, didn't like the attack on localism, didn't like big corporations, media corporations. And you had Trent Lott on one side, Code Pink on the other. I think that there are issues in this country that can we can find some agreement on. Uh, not everything by any measure, but I do think it's important to talk. And I think it's important for the nation, which is first and foremost an independent uh, media, a magazine, that we raise issues. We weren't popular with a lot of Democrats when we opposed the Iraq War. Mm. When we, when we uh, in 1999, warned that the repeal of Glass-Steagall by Bill Clinton might unleash a financial crisis. So we step apart when we need to. And we try and speak to the issues. That's that's how we see our role. Let's see what issue matters to Emily. She's calling from uh, Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. Where, where is Drexel Hill? I'm 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 afraid I have to ask Emily. It's uh, just about a couple miles outside of Philadelphia to the west. I will right have next to Upper Darby. Ah, okay, okay. I will have to visit. Tell us what issue matters to you, Emily. So I just got my teaching certification. Oh, um, good for you. As someone breaking into the education field, I'm kind of terrified at the thought that we appointed this woman DeVos, and now everybody kind of shut up about it. <laughs> we, she got approved, and now we haven't heard anything. And I think at the end of the day, we can talk about Russia, we can talk about politics, but Nothing is going to hit home unless we educate children about why this is a big deal. Uh, you mean, you and, mean Emily, everyone uh, shut up in their criticism of her and her testimony and her policies, etc.? Um, not so much in criticism of her, um, but I haven't heard anything except for the one school that she went to. Um, I have seen that there was a bill... Um, presented to repeal the Department of Education. That's kind of terrifying, um, considering that might be my career for the next 40 years. Um, I, I, at the end of the day, I just worry that people are, instead of building America, we're worrying about the adults in the room and not the kids. Mm. Well said. Katrina. Emily, well said. I mean, we did a lot of coverage of uh, Betsy DeVos, but even in a broader way, we're looking at 
you know, there's a lot, there's, this may sound too grand, but I think there's an effort to privatize everything. And the idea of the public sphere, yeah, yeah, a public education, one of the great, great, what makes America truly great is at risk of being uh, gutted, privatized. The agenda is there. It's a, I think the fight is really at the state level. You may disagree. I mean, the Department of Education has real control and power, but not uh, as deep as some think. But yeah, the fight is to remind people uh, of the value, mm-hmm. the power of public education. I think what's, we have a group of people, if I could generalize, who are running, basically people who have been put in charge of agencies in order to dismantle them. Uh, or they have contempt for the very mission. I mean, you think of Rick Perry's who wanted to abolish the Department of Energy or didn't even know what it was, is now head of it. Betsy DeVos wants to gut public education, which is essentially the mission of the education department. And Steve Bannon has said very clearly that he wants to deconstruct the administrative state. I laugh because what we need to do is remind people of the that government is not an alien force. As Franklin Roosevelt said, it is us. So public education, sure, it can be improved, and it should be. But don't blame teachers. Don't bait teachers. And spend more time thinking about how we rebuild the schools. And some of that is budget, and some of that is priorities. And uh, we, 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 I, I, you, what you said is so powerful and that you're going into teaching. It's possibly the most powerful uh, thing you can do. Thank you, Emily, for your service as a teacher very much. Uh, we are we're close to the end of our hour. My colleague uh, John Perdo, do you want to get a final question in to Katrina? Because I will hog up the last two minutes of indivisible. I was just wondering, Katrina, in, you know, in that spirit of um, giving political opponents, a, you know, a fair shake and and not assuming their motives are necessarily bad. I mean, if you look at Betsy DeVos, you know, I have some differences with her you know, policies as they seem to be at education. But she's somebody who has a view about how to, you know, improve the lives and the schooling of, uh, you know, kids who are um, stuck in bad schools. And, you know, she's got a particular way of doing that. It doesn't necessarily have to be the case that, you know, she's motivated by some sort of dreadful desire for privatization or profit. You know, she. I think if you, you talk to her about this stuff, she really, she's sincere about it. And, and you've, got about, you've got about 45 seconds for that uh, answer, Katrina. Uh, respect what you said, John. I just think that her record, her history shows more of an intent to uh, end public education. I think there is room for charters and for a broader range of alternatives. Thank you so much for having me on. Katrina, always a pleasure. Katrina Vanden Heuvel, editor of The Nation. And you have been listening to Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation, four nights a week for the first 100 days of the new administration. Catch Brian Lehrer tomorrow. He'll be taking your calls as well. I'm Jamie Floyd. I'm John Prudhoe. We'll talk to you next week. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.